What if you don't actually have to fully understand someone in order to be kind to them, in order to care for them? What if you could just be like, these people are human beings. I want them to be happy. Hey, I'm Kelly Corrigan, and this is Kelly Corrigan Wonders. This week, I'm thinking about how understanding and approval factor into kindness. In other words, are we actually only nice to people we feel good about? Blame my quandary on Carval Wallace, a fellow writer and creative, as well as a thinker I have been devouring lately. He is the curious mind behind the beautiful, beloved podcast series about Mr. Rogers called Finding Fred, and he writes powerful profiles of artists, actors, and activists like Mahershala Ali, Riz Ahmed, and Steph Curry. Before writing, Carvel spent 15 years working with kids who were incarcerated or in foster care. I'll be right back with my guest, Carvel Wallace. Hey, everybody. If you love listening to true stories from people all around the world, then we have the perfect recommendation for you, the Moth Podcast. Each episode features people from moth events around the globe, sharing diverse and honest stories of love, resilience, change, heartbreak, chance encounters, unbelievable calamities, and everything in between. Episodes drop weekly. Find The Moth Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states and situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and I'm talking today with a writer and a thinker and a podcaster named Carvel Wallace. I met him on Medium, and we're talking today about race, love, and understanding. Hi. Thanks for doing this. I'm happy to be here. So I have uh, done a deep dive of all things Carvel Wallace, and I am a <laughs> new super fan, and I thought that I would just put in front of you uh, some of the most striking lines that I highlighted. And let you riff on mm, them. That sounds great. Okay, great. So from your last post on Medium, which is how we know each other, mm. um, it was about love and how it's just impossible to know someone entirely. And you said, they are a different person with an entire lifetime of differing experiences. There are not enough quiet late night talks or long morning walks together in all of your lives on this earth for you to come to understand all of them. They've experienced this world in a different body, perhaps a different gender, a different class than you. They grew up in a different place with different parents. The childhood experiences that shaped them may be known to you, memorized by you, but you can never truly understand those experiences as your love does. How they all are intertwined, creating a network of desires, fears, attachments, and avoidance that you can never know in its entirety. You can only guess. Yeah. <laughs> the question that that brought to mind is that if two people who are in love and full of all the right intentions can't get there, can't get to a place of understanding, 
then uh-huh. how will races, genders, nations, political parties, dot, 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 ever hope to get to some shared understanding? Well, the presumption that underlies your question is that you have to understand someone in order to be kind to them, in order to care for them, in order to not harm them, in order to like stand up against their systemic harm or their abuse. What if you don't actually have to fully understand someone in order to do that? And I think in some sense, that is the experiment of love that I find myself going into as I like enter the second half of my 40s and like thusly the, the latter half of my life, um, speaking optimistically. When we're young, or at least when I was young, I thought, I'm going to meet this person, I'm going to learn everything about them, and that's all going to be sort of like... Um, you know, currency that I can trade in for a great love. You know, that if I like do enough listening and do enough learning and do enough understanding that I will be able to stack up all of my kind of like understanding chips and then push them across the table and in return receive like the ability to be the perfect partner or have the perfect love or truly, if I'm really digging into it, probably to avoid conflict, which is the thing that I historically have hated. And um, over these years, I've learned that it doesn't seem to work that way. To enter into love with someone is to enter into an act of care that isn't necessarily predicated on knowing everything about them or understanding everything about them because the, the act of trying to understand everything about someone is inherently an act of ownership, I think. That is one of the theories that I'm sort of fleshing out. What if your love and kindness and support can exist without fully knowing someone, fully understanding someone, ever owning them, never categorizing them, never having a name for it, never putting them in a book? What if you never do that and you still can love and respect and support something? That's the thing that I think about these days. That's so interesting. It's it's very respectful, actually, of the mystery and the complexity that each of us is and that all these sort of groups and policies and intentions represent. It's I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say that it's um, wrong-headed to pursue complete understanding. I think about so many things that I've learned over the course of my lifetime, even just as a parent or with my husband, like the, the more I understand, well, it could all be predicated on things I think I understand, but that I have slightly (laughs) wrong, which would be dreadful because there comes this misguided conviction. Mm. What I was going to say is the more I know his family, his parents, the more stories I hear, the more time I spend with them and his sister, the more time I spend in Little Rock. I listen to all his music and I watch his shows. And I think that I'm acquiring understanding. And, And to the extent that I think I have acquired it, it may emboldened me with this terrible conviction that I know. Mm. And that could be counterproductive in terms of our relationship because it doesn't actually allow for surprise and evolution. Mm. Yeah, that might be true. Again, I mean, I'm just thinking at the outer reaches of what I what I know. I'm not, I didn't come on here to be like, eh, this is my theory. Everyone should abide by it. Please buy my CDs for 1999. I'm just saying like, I, <laughs> old people reference. Um, but I'm just theorizing that definitely Western culture teaches us that you have to understand and approve of something in order to be kind. 
That's a big part of it. I live here in Oakland, right by the lake. My kids and their mom also live on the other side of the lake. And the lake has gotten blacker and blacker over the past few years, which is a reclaiming of what it used to be like before this huge swing of gentrification. And my son was talking about how whenever there's complaints about the lake, his theory is that these complaints aren't because the music is loud or people are uncomfortable. It's because like a lot of white people don't like the way black people are when we're together in public, period. They don't understand it. They wouldn't do it that way and they don't like it. And it's stressful to them. And so they're like, if you don't behave in a way that I approve of, then I think there's a problem happening and I might need to intervene and get this like reconditioned and organized into something that I can recognize as appropriate. Like the way I like to be at the in public is this way. This is the way I like to listen to my music. This is the way I like to barbecue. This is the way I like to gather with my friends. That is the way we should be doing it. You're doing it this whole other way. Not only do I not like it, I don't understand it. It's weird and I don't approve of it. What if you could just be like, these people are human beings. I want them to be happy. I want them to be joyous and free, period. It's got nothing to do with whether or not I'm down with the way they're doing stuff. So to me, this question of like how to love without understanding, how to love without ownership is intricately tied to how to interrupt our tendency towards oppressions. Yeah, and it's even, it doesn't even stop with like understanding. The ideal state is that we would want even people we don't like to be free. Right. Wow. That's a wild concept. <laughs> but yes. Right? Can you imagine? Like yeah. to me, when I when I break it right down the middle of the night, like with with misogyny, with transphobia, with racism, I always think that what it really comes down to is people just don't want other people to be free. Period. And by free, I mean operating on terms that you have not personally approved of or organized. That's what all these conversations ultimately come down to. Like the fear that someone will be free and operating just fine on terms that you didn't set up or approve of. I feel the same thing with like homosexuality. I think, why do you care? Yeah. Yes, that's a really good when example. You, when you look, it's like, why do you care? Right. I don't understand what that is for you. And it's like, I don't like it. I don't like that. That doesn't feel good to me. It doesn't feel right. And I don't like seeing you guys holding hands and making out. Like, it creeps me out. Right. And it's like, oh, that's <laughs> that's on your side of the fence, mister. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the hard thing. Like, knowing what's on whose side of the fence is a really tricky thing within the context of relationships. And when I talk about relationships, I don't just mean partners. I mean, your relationships with your children is a big one. I mean... It gets really complicated and hairy with, you know, when you have two teenagers and you're I know. you're mad at them and you're trying to get them to be a certain way because you're trying to show them the way because you're the parent and you have the experience and they're not really doing the thing that you want. But they should be because that's the way to do it, son. You know, and like, they, but they're just like, no, I think that this is big political stuff, but I think the the actual place where it really plays out, this is one of the working theories of my work, especially of late, is that it plays out in the individual relationships. And mm-hmm. I examine the individual relationships as a way of like examining these larger systems. Well, you know, I think you're really good at examining yourself. So I want to put another quote in front of you. Where I'm coming from, men are taught control and power, the economics of fear and abuse, isolation and mistrust, violence and emptiness. Where I am going or trying to go is a place entirely more human a place where we don't have to be alone to be safe, 
where we care, quite simply, care with gentleness and strength, vulnerability and honesty, and yes, even need for ourselves and each other. It often feels like I'm walking this alone because I don't know where the men are who were raised how I was raised, but are trying to become how I'm trying to become. Mm. You have a teen son, yes? How's that going? How's modeling vulnerability and gentleness and care? It's going so bad that that question almost feels like you're trolling me. It's almost like uh, someone's like, how's that oh, working no. out for you? But <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I've touched a no, raw nerve. No, it's, it's, no. I mean, it's a process. I guess the thing that really strikes me now about kids, I guess I'm just impressed by how much they learn from the world, period, without you being involved. How much they learn from videos and YouTube and TV. How many subtle things... Each they, other. Each other. How many subtle things they pick up about the way culture is supposed to work. That when you say, no, 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 son, it's this way. They're like, well, that's weird, Dad. I've never heard anyone say that. Are you sure? I've also seen the ways in which my kids reflect our own struggles with with how to love freely, gently, carefully. You know, it's been, he's been watching me for 18 years and 15 years consecutively, the two of them. And so they have a lot of evidence of, you know what I mean? They've seen me at my worst because that's what family sees you, is that you at your worst. And I mean, I know that in the complete analysis of it, we're probably good parents, whatever that means, or rather the attention and time that we pay towards being present with them and towards addressing our own shortcomings and being honest and apologizing and making amends when necessary and letting things go so that we can give them love, which is great. But I can definitely see, you know, you see your kids act in a way and you're like, did you get that from me? Because that's... I can't believe I have zero control over what you remember. Yeah. Because if we spent like 25,000 days together or whatever before you go to, to off into your big life, what if you remember like the six worst? Yes. Like I almost feel like that's part of what I'm doing in the world as a memorist and a writer publicly talking about family life quite a bit is trying to like control the narrative a little bit and mm. say, I know, I know, I know that I was terribly impatient that one day or I was rude to your father but remember this? Mm-hmm. Remember that time that you were really into music and I made you a birthday cake that looked like a guitar? Yeah. yeah. You touch on something that I feel like I, I really... Uh, this is part of the reason I stopped doing parenting advice stuff is because I started feeling like the kids are too old for me to be telling their stories. Those stories belong to them now. They don't belong to me and I no longer can just go around telling them. And so... That has turned into a little bit of a North Star for me, which can make writing really hard. It's really hard for me to tell someone else a story. I I can tell what my experience is and what I struggled with and where I came up short. But that's all I can tell. I can't tell what they experienced. And that becomes like very important guardrails for me when writing. Yes, and also what their motives are. Mm. Like That's like a big thing that I'm super hyper aware of in myself and others is this willingness to ascribe motive and what could be more unknowable, perhaps even to the person themselves, than why they were behaving as they behaved in that moment. But you know, like our psychic comfort is entirely dependent on us being able to convince ourselves that we are quote unquote good people. Yes, that's probably true. Let's take a short break here and we'll be right back with Carvel Wallace. 
When you're hiring for your small business, you want quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than, wait for it, a billion professionals, which makes it the best place on earth to hire the right people. It gives you access to applicants you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and totally intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have this many qualified candidates right at your fingertips. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn Jobs just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash kelly. That's linkedin.com slash kelly to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Kelly Corrigan. Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm here with a writer named Carvel Wallace, who is the great mind behind the beautiful podcast series, Finding Fred, about Mr. Rogers. And we're talking today about race, love, and understanding. There's so many things to know and to wonder about in this world. And there's so many people who want to show and tell you all they can people who want to help you to learn and to be brave and strong and interesting and loving. That's the best part of living, loving. And I love being with you. Finding Fred, which is this 10-part Peabody-nominated fantastic (laughs) podcast series, starts out with this question about what is a good person? You wanted to look at Fred Rogers because he did something so extraordinary, which is that he brought this very soft set of values to the forefront. A couple of times throughout the series, we interviewed people that knew Fred Rogers personally or that worked with him. We had these long conversations with them. Like we got in this topic of, are we good? And at least two of them said something like, well, Fred Rogers would be proud of you. Mm. And in some ways, I feel like That's probably, from a human perspective, maybe a more important metric than am I a good person? There's something about the unfettered, specific love, like the kind that Fred Rogers seemed to be capable of doing as a result of his spiritual practice. He reached this ability to look at a person and see them as a complete person, their childhood, their fears, their hopes, their anxieties, their discomfort. And he seemed to have an ability to accept all of that Mm -hmm. and say, I love you. You are special to me. And he could do that with anyone, Mm -hmm. which is so phenomenal. And on the one hand, you know, the conversation I had with Eve Ewing... I was going sort of like, well, what is that kind of unconditional love mean when people are bad? You're supposed to unconditionally love your oppressors, someone who has harmed you in this way. And she said, you know, I think as a society, we spend far too much time trying to figure out what to do with the people who are bad Mm -hmm. and not enough time figuring out how to love the people who are hurt. 
our concern is always like, how badly should we treat the bad people? Should we kill them or just lock them away? Let's debate. And really, one of the questions should be, how can we love and support people who are harmed? Mm. And, uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that was one of those thoughts where someone says a sentence and all of your thinking was going down one path, just takes a sharp left and heads down a completely different highway for the rest of your life. Mm. How do we love the people that are hurt? Mm -hmm. I remember talking to this woman who does work with uh, sexual offenders and in particular is trying to change some laws about what defines um, sexual abuse in children. And I said, how did you get into this? And she said, I had a relationship with my grandfather and that was very loving and also very inappropriate. Mm. And what I came to understand is that almost all perpetrators of sexual violence are also victims. And so the desire to categorize into good people or bad people is super problematic. Mm. And the creation of that third bucket that your friend Eve came up with, which is what if a huge majority of what we want to say are quote-unquote bad people are also victims? How would that change the way that we think about them, the policies that we create, the ways that they're supported, et cetera? So those words, perpetrator and victim, kind of merged for me in the way that your friend swapped in hurt for bad. Yeah, and I think it's a complicated issue. When I go back to Fred Rogers' practice, one of his practices was that he spent a lot of time in meditation and in silence and in communion with something bigger than himself. So he had a way of embodying really complicated ideas. And as a culture, we don't do that a whole heck of much. We don't take the time. These questions require a kind of patience and quiet in order to see through them clearly. Because I don't even know, I mean, how can we support people who are harmed. So one of your great profiles, you've profiled so many interesting actors and activists and athletes, was of Riz Ahmed. And he was the mm. star of The Night Of, which I absolutely loved. And he's incredible. So anyway, you talked about these mental categories that people have for whom they should pay attention to and whom they can ignore, such that, quote, you could quite possibly have sent Riz Ahmed on a bicycle to deliver food to people in their apartments while they were watching his HBO series, The Night Of, and a healthy percentage of New Yorkers might have signed the credit card receipt and closed the door without a second thought. Is that changing or evolving in any way? Or is are we stuck? Like if I see a if I see a beautiful woman with diamond earrings, if I see a black kid with his pants low, like could we ever override? whatever little set of assumptions kick in before we can even take a breath? I, I truly don't know. My tendency is to believe, like, not super really, that we could sort of categorically overcome it. I think there can be some interruption of that, some, like, ex some examination of that. Um, here's the issue. We have systems of oppression, period. That's the issue. That's always, as far as I'm concerned, that's the issue. So the human instinct to say, well, I must quickly diagnose the situation to determine if it's a threat or if I'm safe or what have you, is influenced by the existence of these systems of oppression. That's it. Like, 
if if you see a, a black teen with his pants hanging low, what is it about low pants that says like this is a threat? There's low pants aren't, and if anything, they're less threatening. I, what are you gonna do to me? Your <laughs> pants are around your ankles. This is I'm not. You know what I'm saying? Like in the purest sense, this is not even a thing. But what we've been taught to understand these signs and symbols as a threat for all of the historical reasons that we don't have time to go into, but I presume most of your listeners know. And so we're at a point where we can't trust our initial instincts. We've already been indoctrinated into all this bullshit. And so we have to disrupt that process. Yeah. And so can we ever fully be rid of it? I don't know. You know, I think of Pema Chodron saying once that, um, that her meditation practice didn't, rid her of her insecurities and made her a connoisseur of them. Oh, that's so good. You know? Yes. And that's, I think, just to kind of, she, you know, said a thing that is true of like the whole sort of practice. Uh, I don't think that we will be rid of that. I know as a man, this is the thing that happens to me all the time. I've been taught to view women in these ways over the course of my life. They're automatic. They've been reinforced at every turn from the time that I could first open my eyes and decipher an image on a screen. It was like, this is how to think of women. This is how to organize your thinking around them. This is what you do. And so that's not going to go away. I'm not just going to be free of that. I have to be constantly disrupting that and saying, oh, there's that thing again. There's that thing again. Why did I think that? Why am I assuming this? you know and I also need others in my life that do that you know like that that like say to you that's interesting why'd you say that and I have to be like huh why did I say that so I think it's a practice um you know I think the practice is as close as we'll ever come to a solution right we're not going to rewire so speaking of um jumping to conclusions mm. when you were with Riz Ahmed you passed this crazy jeep can you tell that story <laughs> so you know, when you do like a celebrity interview, you select a place and then you, you your team and their team, like there's all this negotiation. So with him, it was like, oh, well, first we're going to go to, we're going to meet for breakfast. Then we're going to go to the Met and, and then we're going to go to like Riz's apartment. And this is will be where you conduct the interviews in these locations. So we're in the Uber from the Met down to whatever our next stop is going to be somewhere in Park Slope. And we pull up at this light and there's this weird truck next to us that's like a Jeep, but it's like painted matte black and it looks kind of like post-apocalyptic zombie proof type vehicle i think there was even a sticker on it that said zombie proof <laughs> and it's got like the lights and the spikes and like the gas canister and it's like on some total mad max whatever and so I, i'm trying to get riz to stay on topic because he's off always on the thing and so when i see this thing i'm like i'm not even gonna say anything because i know it's gonna turn into a whole production so then Riz <laughs> is like whoa look at that bro look at that and he looks over and he's like he can't believe it and then he's like roll down the window roll down the window i'm gonna talk to him and i'm like okay so we roll down the window he leans over me and he's like hello bro hello what's up you know and the guy's like the guy rolls down his window and he says what's up with your jeep and the guy just goes zombie proof and he and riz instead of being like okay that's weird goes zombie proof eh wow that's amazing like and he's just like engages this guy and eventually the whole story comes out <laughs> this guy is part of these orthodox jewish dudes who perform at bar mitzvahs and parties they're stuntmen and clowns and they're from France. I think the, the name of their group is like the Twins from France. And so they drive around in this car and they show up to various events and they hop out of the truck and they juggle and set things on fire and entertain people. And that's what they do for a living. And it was so weird because when I was looking at them, 
I, my initial impression was I don't want whatever's going on in that car because it's probably some weird, like white supremacist, something or other, because that's the way I view the world. Like here's another threat. And whatever they ended up being was not the thing that I expected them to be. It was something else. And I think for Riz, who's, I I jokingly say that he was off on tangents, but he wasn't. He's a very cognizant person. He knows what he's doing. He knows that I'm recording everything and I'm forming a narrative around all of his action. So his conversation with the Uber driver, that's part of the thing. His insistence on talking to this guy, that's part of a thing. And when he gets the information from the guy that says, hey, you thought it was this one thing, but it's here's this crazy combination of identities that you never would have expected, he was so pumped. He was like, you see that? That's what I'm talking about. You can't tell who anyone is. That's what I mean. That was like his whole thesis for humanity summed up in one interaction. So you also profiled the guy who wrote Moonlight. Oh, yeah. Uh And his name is Terrell McCraney. Yeah. He's a playwright and a screenwriter. Um, And you said this thing that kind of broke my heart that seems related to what we were just talking about, which is, If beauty is the pillar at one end of his work, pain is at the other. McCraney digs unflinchingly into the suffering that pulses at the center of his characters' lives. I asked him about the concerns some Black artists and storytellers have, that our work may simply boil down to trading in Black pain for rent money. If the question, he says, for you about peddling Black pain is appropriate, you also have to think to yourself, well, why am I in so much pain? Mm. Do you struggle with that question? Like, are you laying it out for rent money? I struggle with that question a lot. I think that to be a Black memoirist in the U.S. is, like, really about trying to find the narrow pathway between examining pain and trauma in in a human sense, which is what we do when we write, of the self. On the other hand... You have to kind of avoid pain porn, right? which is a real thing that happens. Like white people, especially liberal white people, love to hear about black people in pain. I don't know why. It just seems like they do. They really get excited about it. And Well, I mean, there's, and it's not even just black people in pain. Like there, there are best-selling memoirs about anorexia, about alcoholism and addiction, stories of people who are um, desperate. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, that may be true, although I do think that there's a, we have a specific relationship to the American story that is about our pain. I mean, there was like some kind of meme on um, Twitter at the beginning of Black History Month that was like uh, Netflix uh, streaming services be like celebrating black stories. But then all the pictures were from like <laughs> black people being abused and yelled at and like, you know, attacked. And um, those are the movies that win Oscars and um, footage of black people being killed by police was the most popular footage of black people in 2020. Whether or not that's just because, oh, well, people like the dramatic and stuff. When you're in a country that has like quite literally profited off of your suffering for extended centuries, you at least have to examine, what am I doing with my suffering now in this context, right? I mean, you at least have to ask that question. And so to be a Black memoirist is a specific task of having to sit with that question. I also think that the work of unearthing your trauma and its sources is a tremendous form of labor. And it takes a huge toll on you. And so you have to ask yourself, who am I doing this for and why? Mm -hmm. What is the purpose of this? Mm -hmm. It can't just be because people are into it and want to see some drama. 
there has to be something in it that is life-giving mm-hmm. for me and for others. It reminds me of listening to Dave Chappelle talk about walking away from Chappelle's show. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yes. Go ahead and tell that story because in case people haven't heard it, because that's that's exactly it. Well, I mean, he was making a tremendous amount of money and there was a tremendous amount more waiting for him. And he had had like these lingering concerns that maybe it wasn't landing right and that in some weird, twisted way, he was reinforcing things that he was trying to expose as wrong. Mm. And then he was doing a scene and there was a camera person, as I recall, Mm. who had this kind of cackling laugh. Mm. There was something about the sound of it where he was convinced, oh God, all my fears are coming true. This isn't helping. Mm -hmm. This is giving people fodder to believe the same wrongheaded things. And he walked away and people were just like, "Yeah, what? Yeah. I've heard that story a lot. And that moment really resonates for me. Because the horror of that moment isn't just that you go, oh, wait, I have, you know, sort of fed this racism and these white kids who love my work so much are actually laughing at Blackness in a way that I'm not actually comfortable with. It's like been sort of co-opted into this other thing. There's not just the horror of realizing it in this moment. There's the cavernous terror of realizing that that's what you've been doing for the last seven years. And (laughs) that's why you walk away. Like, that's why you go to South Africa. That's why you abandon everyone and don't return phone calls. Yeah. Tell the story of Fred Rogers and having Officer Clemens come and rinse his feet off in the pool. Oh, well, you know, this is dead in the middle of some pretty significant fights about segregation in the South, specifically around pool segregation, which actually turns out to be this battleground for the question about integration and segregation. And there's so much violence around Black people being allowed to swim in the same pools as white people that there's even a situation where and this is a famous image where a bunch of kids decided they were sort of a la the Woolworth sit-ins. They were going to like go into this hotel. So it's a motel, not a major thing. And just hop in the pool and just say, fuck it, we're here. That's what we're going to do. Call the police if you need to. We're staging a protest. We're allowed to swim here. And that the while they were swimming, the owner poured battery acid into the pool. Um, that is the violence with which people feel the need to contain these barriers. So around that time, he has Fred Clemens on the show who plays uh, the police officer. And it's a hot day. And Fred Rogers is in his front yard and he's cooling his feet in a kiddie pool. And uh, they make some small talk. Boy, what a hot day. Yeah, you know, I'm cooling my feet in this kiddie pool. Well, that looks like something that is great to do. And Fred Rogers says, well, why don't you join me? And, and Officer Clemens says, I would love to. And so he sits on the chair and he takes off his shoes and he puts his feet in the pool and he sits next to Fred Rogers. Maybe they have some lemonade. Oh, this is so nice. Just, you know, kid show, two guys, just vibing, just enjoying <laughs> kiddie pool on a hot summer day. And they make some small talk. And then uh, it's time for him to get back to work and he wants to dry his feet. And Fred Rogers offers to dry his feet for him and he takes the towel and he dries Clemens' feet. And he says, oh, I appreciate this. And that's it. That's the episode. And th- that image for Fred Rogers to share a pool with a black man during this fight over segregation was its own thing. For him to wash and dry his feet, you know, Fred was a Presbyterian. That was specifically to call forth the image of feet washing that takes place in the Bible, where 
Jesus washed the feet of a woman who was considered a prostitute as a way of saying, this person is deserved of love, of honor and care the same way that I am. So that was his way of addressing it. He never said a thing about it. He didn't do a special episode where he said, today, kids, we're going to talk about segregation. He just had this image. I've always thought just as a writer, as I nerd out on it, on the symbolism, on the imagery, on the understated way in which he approached it, on the power of it. It's just beautiful. It's just really, really beautiful. Well, you know, he did another thing that you called out about that, that brought to mind Fred Rogers' statement, love the clay. And it's very similar to this moment. It's very show, don't tell. So some educator said, I want you to have a sculptor on and I just want them sculpting near the kids. I don't want them to give a talk about sculpture. Mm. I don't want them to teach kids how to spell the word sculpture. I want someone to be here loving this work in front of them and that will spread. Yeah. And, And putting the feet in the kiddie pool with Officer Clemens is loving the clay. It's just enjoying time with another human being in front of others yes. in a way that will probably have tremendous influence. Yes, well, I think that Fred Rogers, one of his great theories um, was that that the act of love was in and of itself instructional. To perform the act of love in public was in and of itself influential. I mean, talk about an influencer. Unbelievable. That dude was an influencer. And his way of influencing was to demonstrate love in every moment. And that's the other thing that makes his show such a phenomenal work of writing is the the closeness with which it hewed to its themes is enviable. Fred Rogers had this theme of love and he everything that was written and everything that happened in front of the camera was organized around demonstration of that. The way he listened, the silence, the people he had on, the conversations they had, everything, whether he was going to the dentist, whether he was visiting a rubber band factory, whether he was like feeding a goldfish, every single time. It was phenomenal. So speaking of love in public, mm. uh, you tell this little story at the end of your piece about Black Panther, you evoke this scene. So will you read the end of that? Sure. The setup here is too is that we were talking about uh, Black Panther and the excitement around the film as part of this long tradition of Black Americans creating an imaginary Africa. It's an imaginary place where we're looking to be free. And so that's what I felt like ending this piece on because my argument was that Black Panther and the African-American excitement around it was an, an extension of that. And so the story was about my friend whose partner walks down the street. It was a professor and every single year at graduation when he puts on his thing, some Black person will like stop and give him this public love. And so I write, this is how we do with one another. We hold one another as a family because we must be a family in order to survive. Our individual successes and failures belong in a perfectly real sense to all of us. This can be for good or ill, but when it is good, it is very good. It is sunlight and gold on vast African mountains. It is the shining splendor of Wakandan warriors poised and ready to fight. It is a collective soul as timeless and indestructible as vibranium. And with this love, we seek to make the future ours by making the present ours. We seek to make a place where we belong. Thank you so much. Really, really think your work is spectacular. And I hope everyone goes straight to Medium. Thank you. To look at all of your posting 
And then you can Google him for all the longer profiles. And then, of course, you have to listen to Finding Fred. I hope our paths cross again really soon. (laughs) I'm so grateful for my conversation with Carvel. Here are my takeaways. One, what if you don't need to understand someone to be kind to them? Two, family sees us at our worst. Maybe that's why it's so hard to maintain authority over our teens. Three, everybody wants to control the narrative and everyone wants to think of themselves as good people. Four, if Mr. Rogers would be proud of you, you're doing all right. Five, how can we support people who might be doing bad things as a response to bad things being done to them? Six, we would be wise to get into the habit of disrupting our automatic assumptions. Sometimes the guys who look like white supremacists turn out to be bat mitzvah jugglers. Seven, it's worth wondering why we tell, award, and devour stories about pain. Number eight, when it comes to moral leadership, show, don't tell. Washing the feet of another is a sacred act of love. Coming up next time on Kelly Corrigan Wonders. When you grow up in a dictatorship and you come to the land of the free, it's quite shocking when you realize, wow, you can just say what you think in America. Kelly talks with Mbolo Mbui, a New York Times bestselling author and Oprah book club pick about her powerful journey as an immigrant in our complicated country. I want to thank Carvel Wallace, the crew at Kelly Corrigan Wonders. That's Susan George and Dean Kateri. I want to thank you guys for sharing episodes, for starting podcast clubs, and for joining the conversation on Instagram at Kelly Corrigan. We'll see you next week. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Hey, I have a quick favor to ask. We are conducting a survey to get to know you, our audience, better. It won't take long, and it's easy to find. Visit survey.prx.org slash Kelly. That's survey.prx.org slash Kelly. Thank you.